So welcome to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that translates Donald Trump. We take an honest look at the current administration, talk about the existential threats to America, COVID, other things. Joining me today is Dr. Marty McCary. He's a surgeon and professor at the John Hopkins School of Public Health. He's also the New York Times bestselling author of The Price We Pay. You'll also hear from George Terwilliger. He's a partner at McGuire Woods LLP, and he's a former deputy attorney general in the Bush 41 administration. Let me get a few things off my chest, Claude. I want to just talk a little bit about Trump's return to the White House. Let me put it this way. You were somewhat less enthusiastic about the president than I am. <laughs> somewhat. 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 Mm-hmm. It's a style thing for me. It's a style uh, and, thing. Yeah, it's not okay. the policy so much. But what did you think of his comments? Uh, we talked about this a little bit. With, uh, we're going to talk about this a little bit with Marty McCary. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, uh, you know, don't be afraid of COVID. Don't let it dominate your life. Right. That, that so, rubbed you the wrong way? Here's the thing. I, I feel as if you, if you said that, Dr. Bill Bennett, or if I said that, or if anyone else, it would be fine. I just think that the fact that it seemed as if, you know, when you have the Woodward tapes and you got the book, that those comments play tough for individuals who are looking for a reason to say, well, now here he goes again, say it, down, downplaying it. When you've already said that, I'm downplaying it because I don't want people to panic, you know? But I think he's right in the fact that do we overbloat? Absolutely. I mean, you know, there are more things, we, we know more things now in, you know, October than we knew in March. And we know things as far as social distancing. We know things as far as wearing a mask. We know things as far as uh, limiting the amount of people in a closed room. These are things that we know now that you can do to fight against it. But I just think you've got to be careful because, again, there are, you know, over 200,000 people that have died from it. I understand. Uh, I understand. I, I, you know, this goes back to the old thing about people who disagree with Trump, uh, take him literally, but not seriously. Right. People who agree with Trump, take him seriously, but not literally. Mm-hmm. So uh, the seriously in which the way in which I take him is he's saying, don't let it get you down. You know, in, in medicine, they say a very important part of your recovery is your attitude. Mm-hmm. You got to right. believe you're going to get better. Try to get better. The will to live. You know, uh, Dylan Thomas, the poem, we've seen it in that pharma ad on TV. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, show the life force. Let the life force. And there is a kind of gloominess out there, Absolutely. Uh, I would say, particularly among liberals, mm-hmm. uh, yep. about, you know, sort of life and COVID and all that. And, um, you know, they're not letting any light through. And, uh, you know, when every time I'm yelled at or any member of my family is yelled at because my mask is slipping. <laughs> Right. You know, I yep. just know it's yep. a liberal. So I, I, I like I love the spirit. Don't let it dominate your life. And don't be afraid of it. It's right. Take it seriously. Mm-hmm. But don't get yourself in a panic and believe you're going to die. Statistically, the odds are very good that you're not going to die. Go ahead. Right. Well, no, I, w- I was going to say I 100 percent agree. I agree with the fact you shouldn't let it dominate your life, especially now. Now we know, you know, there are certain things you can do to keep yourself safe and your family safe. I, I agree 100 percent. Do not let it de- dominate your life. Mm-hmm. Do not allow it to make you afraid do not allow it to change your you know normal course of action as, of life as long as you take proper precautions um it's just that it may fall it may fall on deaf ears given you know i mean even in the debate with the whole thing about the mask yeah i've got a mask but look at you know uh, joe biden's mask it's big and he loves it, 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 it it's almost I taking light, the whole thing like you know we we take it seriously but you don't need to let it dominate your entire life Okay. Yeah. I I believe three times in the Bible, uh, the angel of the Lord says, be not afraid. Uh, once uh, to the shepherds in the field, 
uh-huh. the time of, in, you know, Bethlehem. Be not afraid. Can't remember what the other two are. Maybe you can. Off the top of your head. Oh, man. Well, there were several times. I mean, there was a time where I guess the Lord spoke to Joshua and told him, be not afraid, be only courageous. All right. There you go. You know, um, and I'll I'll have to think about the... the One more and you win $100,000. I I wish I could do it. (laughs) I wish I could. Somebody will write in. By the way, we welcome emails. We hope people will write us. So a lot of the polls are saying... Uh, Biden has jumped ahead after the debate. Uh, most people thought it was a total mess, but that out of the train wreck, Biden's car looked better than Trump's car, if you will. Um, you think this is out of reach for the president? I don't think so. And I, and, and, and here's the reason why. I am starting to hear... Oh, I know um, what you're going to say. And the black vote is coming, right? <laughs> so I so, don't... I, not not <laughs> quite that. Almost. I, it, almost. It's because what I'm, what I'm seeing amongst even my most liberal of friends is the fact that you know, Joe Biden, the, 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 despite the fact that they want him to be okay and strong and looking up to the task, they're coming to realize he, he just, he's, he's not the Biden from, you know, 12 years ago, 10 years ago, uh, even four years ago, that, he, that, he, that his age is showing and that he's just not as sharp and he's not as quick. And it's easy to say that, uh, you know, that he's still the guy in, no, uh, in uh, October 2019, but yeah. we're less than two months away from the election. And now you're, you're looking at it like, well, is he really able to do the job? And so I, I'm starting to see more doubt, yeah. um, especially when even, again, the most liberal of folks, I mean, I'm watching CNN and Van Jones uh, is counting it a victory simply because Biden could, you know, basically stay awake for the entire length of the debate. And it's I like, know. that's not a sign of strength. That's not what you want from your leader. I know, you know? I know. I know. Woke you... until, you know, it's, just, it's, it's odd. No, he looks tired. He looks old. He looks wizened, uh, mm-hmm. worn. Uh, and it's not going to get better. Right. You know, right. Uh, the way the way age works and decline mm-hmm. works, it doesn't it doesn't get better. I can load him up on Prevagen or something. But, I, I you know, I don't I don't think it's going to jellyfish stuff, but I, I don't think it's going to work. So that that will affect people's confidence, which I think will have some effect on how and whether people will turn out. Mm-hmm. Turning out with enthusiasm. I, I don't I think everybody knows Trump will get that much more enthusiasm. Turning out with anger, the Biden crowd certainly has that because they they dislike for the president. But whether you turn out with enthusiasm or anger, the question in election it doesn't. The electoral college and uh, the voting machines don't measure enthusiasm. Right. They just measure the number. So whatever reason you have, uh, maybe the Trumps people are much more enthusiastic than Biden's. But if they show for any reason, even. Uh, an unenthusiastic reason, an antagonistic reason. Uh, the numbers count. Mm-hmm. We'll see. I think it's still in play, but uh, you know, he's uh, the challenge is with the president here. What about the vice president debate? Everybody says, I guess this is true. Hate to agree with the conventional wisdom, but you know, I, I don't like that. But but I guess it is true. This this uh, debate takes on more importance now. Uh, than debates in the past, because you're looking at two guys in their 70s. One just got COVID and the other is doddering, um, <laughs> teetering. And so uh, people are going to look a little more closely. You agree with that? Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. And I think it's probably more important 
for the Democrats than it is for Republicans, because I don't think there's much doubt that if President Trump wins the election in November, that he won't be able to finish the second term. I think most people feel as if he'll be able to to, to finish out the, the, the next four years. The the only doubt is whether or not, you know, former Vice President Joe Biden, you know, not just makes it to the election, but even finishes the first term, you know, and, and just able and capable to do the job. And so, I, you know, I think Democrats are just really looking at, you know, Kamala Harris and as someone who, you know, if they get their way, their, their way, whether it's uh, in one year, whether it's two years or whether it's even in the next four years, will eventually be the president of the United States. And so I think on on the Democrat side, they're looking at it way more closely than anyone is on the Republican side. Yeah, no, he will. Uh, he'll, he'll go on. By the way, that regard, Mrs. Bennett has. As uh, as the boys were growing up in our house, she had a list of verboten words and terms, things you could not say. Okay. And um, it was mostly adhered to until they had a certain age, then they ignored it all. But uh, <laughs> it happens. But there's a phrase she does not want to hear anymore at all in regard to the president. She's heard it ad nauseum, which is that he is a, quote, energizer bunny. Okay. <laughs> We've heard that she said, whatever the president is, he's not a little pink rabbit in sunglasses. Right. <laughs> well, I think enough. the point is just that he has endless energy. Right? Yeah, but she just okay. doesn't like the analogy. Okay, <laughs> but Bye. he is. I mean, I mean, I've never heard that before, but he is. I mean, I'll give you a different one, uh, Roosevelt Teddy. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy referred to him once as a steam engine in trousers. <laughs> That's <laughs> you know, just That's indefatigable good. energy. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Show. Stay current on the threat posed by China with our friends at Committee on the Present Danger China. Go to presentdangerchina.org, presentdangerchina.org. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. All right, joining us now, Dr. McCary, Marty McCary. You've seen him on Fox. He's a surgeon and a professor at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. He's also the New York Times bestselling author of The Price We Pay. Dr. McCary, it's a, a very distinguished career. And personally, if you don't mind me saying, you were my surgeon. And um, here I am. <laughs> better than better than new, thanks to you. Thanks to you. So uh, it's wonderful to have you on. Thanks so much. Great to see you, Bill. A lot of, a lot of things going on here. Let's first talk about the president. I was not offended at all uh, by uh, what he said, which is, don't be afraid of this uh, virus. Um, don't let it dominate your life. It seems to me that's right. I mean, a decent respect and a decent regard and, and care, but, you know, it, it shouldn't dominate your life. Your life should dominate it. You should take whatever measures you, you need to take, but, you know, don't have it get you down. Am I wrong about that? <laughs> well, certainly there is a balance. And what we see in a country where everything is hyperpolarized is that that yeah. balance is ignored and people flee to one extreme or the other. Uh, you know, we are one of the only countries in the world that has hyper-politicized wearing masks, for example. If you look at the Pacific Rim, Australia, uh, Thailand, Singapore, you name it. There's, a, there's about uh, 12 countries, large countries, that collectively have had less than 1,000 cases uh, uh, combined. So the idea that this is sort of a fate that we have to accept is something that, that I think we should reject, and this is something that we can address, and we can do it with an open society. That's a nice way to say, nevertheless, wear your mask and social distance, right? I mean, yeah. you do recommend that. And, and, and has the White House been too cavalier about that? I think the I, White House, you know, the White House has not done a good job protecting the president because in part, 
the guidance that they relied on put them into a testing system that was not reliable. It was a uh, a rapid test, which has about a 50% accuracy rate for asymptomatic individuals. When you read out the reports on how these tests do, they're giving you the overall results or the overall accuracy, not the accuracy. They didn't look at the accuracy breakdown for asymptomatic. So what happened was everybody in the White House developed this false sense of security that it was a so-called fortress. And and we heard that term used uh, many times in the media, that this was supposedly a fortress and the daily testing was sort of this ultimate deterrent. Well, the testing system was, in my opinion, inappropriate. They, they had considered a more uh, sensitive testing system. Now, again, this is not the president making this, these decisions, right? It's not even right. the high-level folks. This is the guidance that they relied on. And the reality is when a, when a president does not have a Ph.D. in virology uh, or infectious diseases, they rely on their medical guidance. And I think they got poor guidance here. And you, you and I talked briefly yesterday about this, and you used that wonderful phrase from, um, I guess it comes from social science, maybe, maybe medical science, moral hazard. Uh, explain what, ha- what you think might have happened. The moral hazard is a principle in public health that's often uh, true, okay. and that is that the behavior will become as risky as it can be to the boundaries of safety. And so the argument is that if you develop a, a lawnmower, a riding lawnmower that can withstand a steeper angle for so-called safety, that people will drive it right to the brink of what it can tolerate and it will have the same accident rate. So that's right. the principle, that people's behavior will be as risky as, as it can be. There's also a sense of security, right? False sense of security. And I think the moral hazard was, hey, we're in an environment that is a fortress because of the testing system. We can relax on the distancing and masking uh, right. I think the classic example usually given a moral hazard is insurance, right? Yeah. So pe- people buy insurance and say, well, I got insurance. Let's go. Let's speed. Right. Yeah, exactly. And um, uh, so people, everybody going to the White House, getting anywhere, anywhere near the president gets tested. So that gives some people a sense, I guess, of invincibility. Um, and so, hey, I'm, I've been tested. I'm fine. But as you point out, the test is not so not so good, not so accurate. But nevertheless, people feel since they've been tested and given a thumbs up, they can drop the mask and, and other things. And and Bill, you you more than anyone has been around the political type person, the type of person that runs for office, the type of person that wants to take a bold risk and try to be a leader in this country. They are generally risk-taking personalities, and there's something you got to be, right? And so when risk appeals to some people, I think that can sometimes magnify the problem. Yeah, it's a different sort. I mean, you know, I've been, uh, I don't want to sound immodest here, but I was encouraged many years ago when I was much younger to think about public office, political office, you know, and I just, formative experience, I remember talking to Senator Phil Graham he was trying to sign me up to support his candidacy for president. And he said, Bill, he said, I want you to join me. He said, I, I got 150 receptions in the next three weeks, and I'm just looking forward to it. And I just thought, my God, I'd rather sew my face to the floor. <laughs> 150 receptions. I'm just not that good. As my wife says, you're a great guy. You just don't like people that much. Well, I mean, I like, I like people fine. I think I'm selective, but I'm very bad at, you know, how you doing and, you know, standing around. Um, if we're in a debate or an argument or having a discussion, like we're doing fine. But I just, you know, the cocktail party 
terror terrifies me, you know, <laughs> meaning, how do you do? I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what you're supposed to talk about. I end up getting in an argument with people anyway, that, but that's, that's, that's the political, that's the political type. Um, one other aspect, I mean, I want to talk to you about sort of the, because we've talked about a little already, the political aspect of, of COVID. One thing where I just may be, you know, part of the too, too much a child of light and not enough a child of darkness. That's a wonderful phrase. It's a great book by Reinhold Niebuhr, The Children of Light and the Children of Darkness, is that it seemed to me for a while, you know, March, April, and it continues to this day that somebody hears that somebody has tested positive for COVID and the conclusion or the assumption right away is they're going to die. My God, they've got COVID, they're going to die. But the numbers suggest radically otherwise. Your odds are very good at almost any age. Um, but this assumption is with us. Have we just, I know, I know the point about being careful and cautious, but have we too much scared the American people on this thing, paralyzed them? I think it's a good point. People are using numbers from March and April when, honestly, we as doctors didn't know what we were doing in treating COVID, uh -huh, and uh -huh. the mortality was very high. And they're extrapolating it to today, to the mid-fall. And the reality is we're about 85% better in reducing mortality. Each of several interventions has knocked the mortality down by a major chunk of, uh, uh, of reduction. So initially it was recognizing that anticoagulation is important, that 40% of deaths were due to vascular complications. So we started anticoagulating. That was a major notch down. Then we realized we don't need to intubate people as aggressively because when you're intubated, you get positive pressure and barotrauma, and it actually hinders your recovery sometimes. So we less aggressive ventilator, ventilator management, that knocked it down. Then the dexamethasone study came out in early June. Ironically, sort of the belts and suspenders professors of the United States said, this, we, you know, we're not going to participate in this trial because it doesn't meet our scientific standards. Well, guess what? Europe and the UK led this study, which became the standard of care. Dexamethasone reduced mortality by over 30%. Then we got remdesivir. Now we have um, convalescent plasma. And the reason that works is that there are antibodies in that plasma. But, you know, you can manufacture those antibodies. You don't have to get it from a patient donor. That's what the Regeneron therapy is. It's the monoclonal or polyclonal antibodies. What those terms mean, clonal, is that you're making it in the laboratory, and that means you can make it in high concentrations. The early phase three readout of that trial was promising. The mechanism makes sense. It worked for Ebola in primate okay. models. It's very effective. It's been around for a long time. And so that is going to knock it down another chunk. My hope is that we get that approval sometime in late October or November, and I think that's highly likely. And that'll knock down the mortality in low-risk individuals to seasonal flu level. So at each intervention, as you, as you, as you suggested, or of many interventions, has knocked it down. So when we hear, this is an honest question, um, the, the reports now, because it seems to me the media has been a major player in this in terms of frightening people. There's an uptick now in 34 states. Um, I don't deny, I wouldn't deny that that's true but an uptick at what level from what level? Am I asking this correctly? I mean, we have dropped a lot, correct? So that the kind of numbers we're seeing in, in March and April are not the numbers we're seeing now. Or am I wrong so, on that? Well, my concern, and we see this among not just the media, but I even see it among physicians, is they take the data from the entire collective 
pool of COVID experience this year, this calendar year, and they quote those numbers, okay? The reality is you can't use numbers from March and April when the mortality rate was, you know, four times higher and tell somebody that's your risk right now. That is the argument that is happening right now, and it's really based on a lack of understanding of epidemiological data. We are carrying a lot of infection into the fall, and a resurgence is not only highly likely, we are probably at the doorstep of it right now. It's, it's probably inevitable. We were hoping to have a more quiescent summer. And unfortunately, we were not able to manage that infection uh, in many parts of the country, especially the Sun Belt. And while the mortality rate has come down significantly, we're taking a lot of infection into the fall. Now, we didn't see the death rates quite as high as they normally would be in the summer, also because it was a younger population. But look at Europe right now. Europe is also having a clear-cut second wave. You know, we were not sure if this bump right now is the post-Labor Day bump or if it's a clear-cut second wave. It appears to be a second wave or, or a fall resurgence. In Europe, it is very clear it's, it is a second wave. They are having a resurgence of cases, but the mortality is not increasing. And it may be because it's somewhat lagging. It may be because therapy is better. It may be because it's more concentrated in younger people, but you can't protect the vulnerable forever. And the reality is we're trying to buy time. Uh, you know, a couple more months of sacrifice, two or three months could be valuable in getting ahead of the epidemic. All right. And, and again, those interventions that you talked about along the way have helped, right? So whatever the incidence of, uh, of COVID, we've made some progress in our treatment of it. And by the way, Bill, it is very hard for this virus to hurt somebody young and healthy. Okay, so if right. how many people, and I'm going to ask you this question, n- knowing that the answer is unknown, okay, how many people under 50 who are completely healthy have died of COVID? Nobody knows. We are doing a preliminary analysis at Johns Hopkins, and it appears to be less than 100 in the, in the United States since the beginning of COVID. That data has significant implications Let me get that right. Just repeat that, would you? People under 50? People under 50 who are completely healthy. How many have died from COVID? No comorbidities, a 100% healthy, fit individual. Okay, maybe 100. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. For kids under 20, we think it's under a dozen. And so we're shutting down the entire school system. No, well, this is... Over a lack of understanding of of that data. I mean... At last, we got something I know something about, <laughs> the schools. No, I mean, it just seems to me crazy, plus uh, the other cost of kids not going to school. I mean, it's just not that they're at, not at great risk from COVID, but when they don't go to school, the things that they lose, social interaction, which is critical for children, um, a- academic instruction. I mean, you know, you lose the math in six months. Calls to it's, uh, child abuse, child, child abuse, or child way sexual problems, right? Because you, you can't have these folks visiting homes anymore. Uh, yeah, you don't have eyes anything. on the kids. Plus, uh, my old job, I was uh, the drugs are. I mean, I know this thing has just been a greenhouse for increased drug use, so opiate use, um, isolation is uh, the best friend of of, uh, of that kind of that kind of drug use. Um, all the losses in, in, in so many ways. So that's where it affects policy. So then, and, and now we get into politics, and I'm not asking you to take sides here unless you want to, but when Biden says 
you know, if the scientists say it's getting worse, then we're going to have to shut down again. Well, maybe it is getting worse per what you just said. Do we shut it down? Let's, let's leave the schools out of it. Let's just talk about business. You know, every morning on Fox, they have some business owner. I saw one this morning who said, you know, I can open my restaurant in New York now to one quarter capacity. If, 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 if there's an upturn, uptick in 34 states, do we shut it down again? Is that the right policy? The country cannot tolerate shutdowns anymore. And we've since learned about the harsh overswing of shutdowns in terms of its direct public health implications. And so I, I think we've had such a bad experience with broad shutdowns that are not data driven that I don't think communities will tolerate it. Now, certainly I would support a shutdown if there is a massive uh, outbreak in a community, if that shutdown is for a limited period of time. And by shutdown, what we're talking about really is indoor congregate settings where the ventilation is poor. We're not talking about closing beaches. Okay. That never made any sense in the history of medicine, closing a beach for a viral outbreak. That is the safest place on the planet, right? You've got UV light pounding down and outdoor wind and space. And so when we talk about closing things, I think what we really need to think of is, and again, there's both extremes here are out of bounds. If we need to do some selective closures, we're talking about de-densifying high-risk indoor congregate settings for a short period of time during a massive outbreak in a local community. We've done that for seasonal flu in the past. We've, we've actually closed schools in the United States for a week for seasonal flu outbreaks that are severe. So those are the reasonable policies the mass blanket policies are the ones that have these consequences that I don't think we should ever uh, accept again. And ironically, uh, why can't we have consensus around some universal masking indoors before we jump to, you know, you've actually got places that are talking about shutdowns before they talk about simple universal masking indoors. Okay. Okay. Um, you mentioned the flu. Uh, what about the flu? If we're, if we're on the verge of an uptick on, in COVID, when does the flu come and what's the effect of the flu coming? So a couple pieces of good news amidst all this depressing yeah. you know, outlook of yeah. this resurgence of COVID in the fall. One, is, one silver lining of this pandemic is that we are finally going to see seasonal flu deaths go down each year for the rest of our living generation here because it's no longer going to be acceptable to show up to work and sit right next to somebody and cough and sneeze and slobber. And, you know, that will uh -huh. never be acceptable again. Uh -huh. So the country has been oddly complacent about the number of flu deaths each year. Four years ago, it was 81,000, about a third of where we are right now with COVID. That was one seasonal flu year and nobody really talked about it. Or, um, you know, it's sort of like the opioid epidemic. If you don't talk about it, people assume it's gone. Right. And it's like, no, it's still there. So we have, uh, that's one piece of good news is we're going to see seasonal flu deaths cut by 20 to 30,000 deaths, I think, this year. Oh. Second is the, the the virus appears to be very mild from the Southern Hemisphere. So I think we're going to be very good. And people are getting more vac vaccinations for it. What's the effect of getting the flu and getting COVID at the same time? Well, one is if you have a co-infection like flu, you create a vehicle of of a trajectory for the transmission. So when you cough or sneeze, you're coughing not just flu influenza virus, you're coughing COVID virus as well. And we know COVID is more contagious or sticky than influenza. So when you 
how in fact you co-transmit, and also it makes diagnostics more difficult. Okay, let's go back to the White House and a, a little bit of a conversation we had yesterday, uh, Dr. McGarry, Marty. Um, a circle of people around the president got, got COVID. People are saying, well, maybe it was the ceremony for Amy Coney Barrett. Maybe it was something else. But a bunch of people around the president didn't didn't get it. Um, what determines who gets it and who doesn't get it? I mean, I, I mean, let's assume everybody there wasn't wearing a mask. Uh, a lot of people weren't, but some of the people not wearing masks got it. Some of the people not wearing masks didn't get it. What do we know about that? There's a couple of theories there, Bill. Um, let me let me throw a couple of them out there. One is that some people have this unique resistance to coronavirus, and it's unknown how you can measure that or how you can predict who they are. The thought is that maybe they were exposed to other similar coronaviruses in childhood that may have created some mm-hmm. minimal cross mm-hmm. immunity. Another theory is that certain blood types correspond to certain genetic makeups and they, be more, they may be more resistant. So when you hear about a case, and I've had cases like this, where a husband and wife uh, sleep together every night and one has the virus and the other never contracted it, right? That is very, that's a mystery. And I think it's good for us to show some degree of humility around a virus we have not yet fully understood. Um, another theory is that um, some people are uh, somewhat resistant because they have a low inflammatory state. If we were to measure people, you know, 10 people at random in the United States, by the degree of general body inflammation, you would get probably three with high levels of inflammation, three or four with low, medium levels, and two or three um, with very low levels. And that is probably one of the greatest predictors of health, and we're just now starting to appreciate it. We know that coronavirus in general is an inflammatory condition, and the death is an inflammatory-related death. But at baseline, we have different levels of inflammation, and you can actually have your doctor check that sometimes. There's a test that's not very good, but it's called the C-reactive protein, and the CRP is a general body marker of inflammation. Remember, heart disease is an inflammatory condition. Uh, Many conditions are inflammatory mediated conditions. I brought up, uh, you just mentioned the heart heart condition. I just brought up because I just looked up the period of time since, uh, you know, the COVID thing hit hard. What what is that? March, I guess, April, Um, some 200,000 plus tests, 210, I guess now. In that same period of time, more than twice that number of people died from heart disease and about twice that number died from cancer. Uh, when I brought that up, I, I, and I've, I, I said once, why is this an advantaged disease? Why does this get so much more attention? People say, well, you can prevent this, and this more attention, the better, because you can do something about it. Well, you do a lot of surgery for people with cancer. You can prevent a lot of that too, right? And heart disease too, right? What, um, is this is this a good thing to bring up or a bad thing to bring up? It's all bad news. I understand these are mortality tables on, on diseases, but is it relevant? I think the you know it's sort of like why is the public fascinated with shark attacks, right? And okay. It's this perception that um, you could be healthy one day and the next day in critical care. And I think there's this um, narrative that's driven in part by um, public perception, in part fueled by the media. And by the way, Bill, you raise a great point. We see this in a lot of things. In my own field of gastrointestinal care and cancer surgery, we see it with different types of cancer, right? Oh, prostate cancer, don't worry about that. That's slow. Uh, We see, oh, pancreas cancer, that moves fast. There is 100 times more funding for breast cancer than there is for pancreas cancer, even though more people die of pancreas cancer in the United States each year. 
how does breast cancer have a hundred times more funding? Uh, now, I, look, it's good. We need a cure for breast cancer. I'm not suggesting we let breast cancer, you know, rip through society and don't fund the research, but the disparity and yeah. how we think of causes of death in the United States is fueled in part by public perception. And, and advocacy, right? Yeah, I mean, we don't have a lot of survivors of pancreas cancer to be out there doing uh-huh. fundraisers and community drives and dance-a-thons, and we just don't have a lot of survivors, whereas breast cancer affects younger women, and they you know, yeah. can get out there and fight for research funding. We got to let you go. You got more important things to do than talk to me. But uh, one last question, as I think I said to you in the hospital, Johns Hopkins, am I going to be all right? Are we going to be all right? Are we going to come out of this? Well, well, first of all, Bill, you're definitely going to be all right. It was such a great pleasure taking care of you. And you were sort of the model patient as a country. We're going to get to the other side of this. The question is how much death and suffering are we going to tolerate along the way? And I think the, the fatalities that we are seeing with COVID is not a fate that we have to accept. The, this is highly actionable and help is on the way. If you look at the therapeutics that we talked about, the monoclonal and monoclonal antibodies, the, our understanding of who is essentially resilient and who is at high risk. If we learn from the data and evolve our strategy, I think we can minimize the death and suffering along the way. So um, we're very close. You know, I think if you look at the J&J, Pfizer, and Moderna trials, we are still looking at a staggered release of a vaccine starting at the end of 2020 and a general uh, vaccination policy available to, the, to everyone probably as a Q2 2021 event. There, there we may be beyond the infection at that point. China actually just announced they canceled their plans to vaccinate the entire population. Instead, they're only going to vaccinate high-risk individuals. So um, we are going to get to the other side of this quickly. I would just encourage people to recognize that a high fatality is not a fate that we have to accept. If you look at all these other countries with, you know, dozens uh, or a couple dozen cases per day in the, United, uh, in the world, you know, large countries, um, South Korea, Australia, New Zealand, um, it is a highly actionable virus, and I encourage people not to have a fatalistic approach. But we will get to the, uh, to the other side of this, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. And when we do, you will be leading the way. Thank you, Marty McCary, Dr. Martin McCary. Appreciate you very much. Thank you, sir. Great to see you, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. It's time to welcome George Terwilliger to the show. George's partner at McGuire Woods LLP and former Deputy Attorney General in the Bush 41 administration. Mr. Terwilliger, welcome to the show. Hi, Bill. How are you? How are you, sir? Good. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Glad to. All right. I, I, you know, I really know very little about this. So let's just start with a, a simple question, uh, an observation and a question. The more I hear, the more worried I am about this election. And the more it seems to me to loom is the biggest worry I have about this election. I mean, I have a, I have a side. I'm for Trump. But in terms of um, things that are really bothering me, uh, the legitimacy of this election, will it come out right? Will it come out fair? Uh, you've written about this. Uh, let's start the conversation there. How worried are you? I, I am worried about it on two levels, really, Bill. The first being 
it's important that, obviously important, that the election be conducted through legitimate means, that there not be untoward amounts of fraud or uh, just malfeasance in the administration of the election. There's always some because elections are administered by people and people make mistakes. But uh, more importantly, perhaps, I'm worried about the perception of our people in the legitimacy of the election. It's nice to have an opportunity to talk about this in a little bit more than 30-second sound bites. Um, but if you think about it, there is nothing, nothing, including the illness of the President of the United States, that is not politicized today. And mm. I'm, I'm not trying to, to cast blame on, on anybody for that. That's a longer mm. conversation for another day. It's just a fact. So to the extent that there are imperfections in this election, I think we, we have to expect that there will be an impulse, perhaps on both sides, to delegitimize the results of the election and, and question them for political reasons. That's dangerous. That is really dangerous. All right, all right, let's uh, stipulate that, that whatever the results, uh, if there are reports or reports of reports of... Um, error or fraud or uh, abuse, misuse, uh, they will be stated loud and probably exaggerated. But what about the legitimacy itself? Is there a there there, George? That is going to be very case specific, I think, Bill, and very, um, very localized um, of a question. Um, there are imperfections in every election. Every election I've ever been involved in, every election question I've ever been involved in, there are, there are always um, uh, some kinds of, of administrative problems. Sometimes there's, there's fraud, although it's very, very hard to prove fraud quantitatively in a way to show that it affected the outcome of the election. But most of the time, those errors do not affect the, the results of an election. Go back to Florida and the recount, which everybody right. is familiar right. with. Um, the, the phenomena of hanging chads and dimpled chads and so forth in those old punch card ballots, that was not a new problem. That problem had been extant in Florida for, you know, since the, the 1960s, um, 40 years. Um, but the fact of the matter is that, that it, those issues became important and those imperfections became prominent simply due to the closeness of the election result. I have hanging on my, my wall in my office the initial canvas um, that came from Florida, and it doesn't take much to understand why that result was so close. There were 12 or 14 presidential candidates who got significant yeah. numbers of votes on that, on that ballot. Um, and so that drew the election even closer. My point is simply this. Um, these imperfections don't matter in elections that are not close. Um, and, and they matter greatly when elections do become close. So part of the question I think here that, that one has to look at is how close do we really expect this election to be and where? 
And so far, I think the prognosticators are telling us it, it is likely in some states that could be critical to the electoral college count to be quite close. And if it is, then these imperfections, um, whether they're intentional or unintentional, are going to become prominent. And that in turn is going to most likely make them subject of of litigation. Yeah, when you look at the battleground states, pretty much there are, you know, three, five, six, seven point separation. That's close. That is close, particularly and, with a with a candidate like President Trump, who traditionally seems to underpoll. Right. And so is the question then, all right, part of the question is it, it matters in a close race. Okay, we're going to have close races. Then I think I heard you say it'll depend where or localize that we kind of, what do we say in social science, disaggregate the data. Are right. there things going on? in particular states, either procedures that they've adopted, enacted, rulings of courts in the states that are particularly troubling. And maybe we could focus the discussion on uh, battleground states. Sure. Well, let's let's take Pennsylvania as a as a current okay. example where there is already an election question that's been been put before the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and that that case, that case um, actually raises some important points, which may have some widespread applicability, which could make this early decision from the court very important. Um, as, as I, I don't mean to to lecture um, about the the Constitution, but let's just go back to some fundamentals. When the Electoral College was established by the Constitution. The, the framers clearly gave the responsibility for um, the select the method of selecting electors to the state legislatures. And we often forget that because today the legislatures of all 50 states have delegated that duty in essence to a popular election. Um, different kinds of popular elections in some places, there's some proportional representation and so forth. But basically, the legislatures have turned that authority over. What's important, and as the Supreme Court said in the 19th century decision in McPherson versus Blacker, um, the legislatures retain that authority such that, to go back to using Florida as an example, there was consideration if we couldn't get a judicial resolution to the situation in Florida of having the legislature reconvene and designate a slate of electors to send to the Electoral College voting in Washington, which they could do. Uh, they lawfully could, could do that. Um, one of the outgrowths of that, though, relevant to this question of what's before the Supreme Court now, is that the rules by which any election contest are supposed to be judged are the rules that are in effect at the time of the election. Okay. Um, that raises a couple of different issues for us now. That used to mean as of the first Tuesday in November, because that was election day. Now we don't have election day anymore. We have election period um, with early voting and mail-in voting and, and so forth. So when the Pennsylvania Supreme Court just issued a decision basically saying that the time for counting mail-in ballots was to be extended by fiat from the court, that raises a couple of different questions. 
Number one, was the court empowered by the legislature to actually make that determination in the context of election law? If it was, then that's probably a valid decision. If, it, if the courts are not clearly empowered by the legislature to extend that deadline, then that is probably beyond the authority of the court. And I think what's going to happen, Bill, just using that as an illustration, there's going to be many questions that come up that are going to fundamentally turn on whether courts are empowered under state law by legislative act to make the determinations they would purport to make. Uh, and okay, um, and how many how many states have uh, issues similar to what you've uh, just described in Pennsylvania? I really don't know at okay. this point how how joined those issues are. But the closer we get to the election, and particularly in a, in the post election period, you know, if 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 some major jurisdiction has a number of mail in ballots that have not yet been counted. Um, and they're not sure whether they were postmarked on time. We had this very issue in Florida with the military ballots from, from overseas, yeah, yeah. whether they had gone through a proper procedure. And that was subject to some judicial interpretation. But the important thing about all of that is if we want to keep this case out of the this election, rather, out of um, being resolved in the House of Representatives, Judges need to exercise restraint in terms of okay. how far they reach to resolve some of these issues and make sure they are empowered under law to do what, what they are planning to do. I read it quickly, I will confess, but not only do we want to keep it out of the, um, the House of Representatives, but if I read your article, National Review, which we'll put up a link to it on our site, you'd like to keep this thing out of the courts as well, right? Yes, yes, because as much as possible, I mean, it's inevitable that there are going to be cases in court. But I, I again, I, I think unless I'm missing the mark, this initial decision on the Pennsylvania case from the U.S. Supreme Court could set parameters for subsequent decisions that could be very important. And, you know, everybody said, perhaps most prominently, Justice Kennedy at the time, uh, we're never going to look at Bush v. Gore again. It has no precedential value. This is a once-in-a-lifetime yeah, right. occurrence. Well, you will find in the papers that are now filed in the Supreme Court, Bush v. Gore cited um, uh, prominently um, because it, the important questions about what what procedures a court is empowered to engage in to resolve election contests and okay. when they can do that and what rules were in fact referenced and important in, in, in that case. And I think will be again. Again, for, for my benefit, the benefit of the audience, what's the status of the Pennsylvania ruling vis-a-vis -vis the Supreme Court? Uh, the, at my last look, which I admit is a week or so um, old, the Pennsylvania Republican Party um, and others perhaps with appropriate standing had appealed the Pennsylvania Supreme Court case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, this is the beginning of the term, so the court will be in session and uh, one would expect that they will, I hope, act on that fairly quickly. Before the election? Uh, have, they have to. They do. Do they I, know that? Well, I, I don't know. We, yeah. We'll um, if that, of course, also makes the, the, the appointment of a ninth justice obviously yep. um, critical. 
Um, the, now that case has not gone through um, a normal appellate process. So whether it's right for review remains uh, to be seen, I suppose. But, um, but the important thing, the important lesson I think for people to take away from this, to get away from some of the, the legal niceties is that there are going to be questions that are gonna wind up in courts. Um, and the point of my national review piece was um, to really encourage participants in general, including judges, not to overreach in what they do. Yeah. If we start politicizing judicial decisions in the, context, in the context of election, going back to the beginning of our conversation, Bill, then we're only going to promote less confidence in the outcome. Yeah. Back to Bush v. Gore, just for a second, refresh my memory, but I remember after the decision, I think it was the Miami Herald did a did a, a comprehensive recount and said, "Yep, yep, that's right. Bush, you know, Bush won," uh, and um, you know that seemed to settle it for a lot of people who were unhappy with the the decision of the Supreme Court. But whatever your wish for a court's involvement or not, it was in fact Bush v. Gore at the Supreme Court that settled and, and ended this issue, right? Yes, abs absolutely, and and kept that case from going to the House of Representatives and perhaps getting into a Tilden B. Hayes type contest over who or what was the official electoral delegation from from Florida. Um, but but that was a I think that was a very practical decision um, given timing. Um, if you recall, there were two cases that went to the Supreme Court. I don't. I don't. The first one okay. was Bush versus the Palm Beach County uh, Board of okay. Canvassers. And uh, it, this is my opinion, um, uh, so take it for what it's worth. But I think in that first case, the Supreme Court was giving the Supreme Court of Florida an opportunity to correct its own error in, ex in extending deadlines that were beyond its authority. Um, interestingly enough, um, the court never acted on the remand of the Palm Beach County case. Bush v. Gore, the contest trial and so forth, sort of took that, um, uh, took that over. And by the time that reached the court, the Florida Supreme Court had gone so far out on a limb in ordering a statewide recount. If you recall, the caravan of, of trucks going to uh, Tallahassee loaded with ballots and so forth. Right. Uh, I think the U.S. Supreme Court, frankly, looked at that. And, and remember, um, there was a seven-member majority. This was not a closely divided decision uh -huh, uh -huh. to end that. Um, I think they looked at it and decided to, um, to spare the country the trauma yeah. of sending the election into the House of Representatives. And as you just pointed out, as it turned out, at least numerically, that was a righteous result. Who were the justices who flipped and made, so it wasn't 5-4? I mean, who were the liberals, I guess, who went over and went with the you know, I, I To be honest, I, I don't want to mislead anybody. Okay, and I, okay. and I, I, don't, I don't exactly recall. Um, All right, doesn't matter. A very interesting question, but I, I don't remember. But the important <laughs> point was, of course, that, that um, I the think... The 7-2? It was a 7-2 decision on the, yeah. on the salient part of the decision. It's a big deal. I want to come back, George, uh, because you said when, in the opening question about fraud in the election, always is, probably doesn't make much difference unless things are close. And then we talked about these battleground states, almost every one of which seems close. 
all right, putting that aside, is there a greater risk of fraud or villainy or illegitimacy because of the scale, two-part question, of write-in ballots, absentee ballots? Because because of COVID, I guess, mainly, we're going to see more non-in-person ballots than ever before by a huge amount. And is it the absentee ballot or is it something else that troubles? I gather from what I've been able to make of the president's position, it's right, you know, absentee ballots, fine. It's just this general mail out of ballots that, uh, that troubles him. What's that distinction? And does the scale itself give you more pause or more cause for alarm and worry? Well, the answer to both is yes. Well, scale matters in terms of the potential for problems and the nature of the the mail-in ballot process and the solicitation, if you will, of mail-in ballots. I just voted in Virginia myself the the day before yesterday by mail-in ballot because I wanted to see firsthand what the the process was was like. And... um, uh, do, do you mind taking a minute to just talk about how the no. process on mail no, no, in particular? So, and I think Virginia is, is fairly typical. Um, uh, I, I requested a mail-in ballot and it was sent to me. Um, and um, I get an envelope from the, the election uh, people in the county where I, where I live. And inside that envelope are instructions a ballot and a return envelope, postage prepaid to to send it in. Um, there's also a a sealed ballot that goes inside the mailing ballot in which uh, I'm sorry, a sealed envelope inside the mailing ballot in which I place my voted ballot and I seal that closed. Um, on the outside of that that envelope, the one that that my ballot is in, which is inside a mailing envelope that goes back to the election officials, um, I have to sign uh, that envelope. And I'm supposed to have it witnessed, although the instructions say if you don't have a witness, it's okay, we'll take it anyway, which I found a little troubling. Um, My signature is on file as a registered voter. So the sole check on the legitimacy of my ballot is going to be somebody sitting there with that envelope in hand, unopened, my ballot still inside, looking at my signature, which is at least 10 years ago, if not more, um, and, and comparing it to the signature that's on file. If they find that they match, then my envelope will go into a pile, into a bucket, if you will, and be opened and my ballot removed, um, and the secrecy of my vote then maintained. Once that ballot is separated from that envelope, there is no way to go back and determine the legitimacy of that ballot. Um, it, it, it happens on the, on the front end. And imagine that process replicated thousands, in fact, maybe millions of times in states across the country. You, you know there are going to be mistakes. You know there is the potential for fraudulent ballots to be voted there. That's, that's really why I think the president or anybody, I mean, I'm surprised that Biden doesn't have um, uh-huh. uh, concerns as, as well. The process is flawed. 
If I can get on my soapbox for just a second, Bill, I actually think, although many conservatives will probably uh, sort of recoil from this idea, but there is a solution to this, not for this election. Um, biometric identification, particularly using fingerprints, we now use it all over. You know, pick up your smartphone and put your fingerprint down yeah, to open yeah, your sure, phone. Sure. Um, we can have biometric identification for elections such that um, you put a, you, you, if you're going to do a mail-in ballot, you put a fingerprint on the ballot and it, and it can be, and there's, there's issues. You could vote electronically uh, much easier using uh, biometric identification to verify that in fact the person voting is an eligible registered voter and then their, their ballot is cast. Um, this is done in a number of foreign countries that have traditional election fraud problems. I understand it's done in a couple of counties in West Virginia and has been for quite some time. But there are technological solutions that we really need to employ uh, for this issue. The problem right. is that all of this came on us um, uh, suddenly due, due to COVID. So we are absolutely dependent on both the the honesty and the uh, the ability of local election officials to process these mail-in ballots in a manner that um, will ensure that only valid votes are counted. Let me let me pick up on your narrative, and I'm glad we did take this uh, this. It wasn't a detour, um, it wasn't a digression either. Do you know what Mrs. Frankfurter used to say of Justice Frankfurter's speeches? She'd say, she said, Felix makes two mistakes when he speaks. First, he digresses from his text. Second, he returns to it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> great. I, I use that when I give my talks. So just as fair warning. But it was a great little narrative. Two questions, one kind of wicked, which is, is your hand as steady now as it was 10 years ago? If you're seeing, Okay. I mean, I, you know, nothing personal. It's just yeah, what happens to you. Know, may look a little different. And will somebody really check every signature? Well, I, I you know, they're supposed to because they are supposed no other, to. There's no other way. I mean, I, I, I think for the most part, um, where the signatures will really become important is if, um, for example, they wind up with two ballots purportedly from the same person. Okay. Okay. But you know, I just can't imagine them really checking every single one. And, and that assumes the files are really, really good. Now you've identified the problem with what I think most people have said, including the president, is the good way to do it, the absentee ballot. But there's this mass mailing question, too, which is different from the absentee ballot. Yeah, the only difference, I think, Bill, and again, we're speaking in generalities about practices yeah, yeah. that vary a bit across the country, but the only difference really is on the front end of that process. In states like New Jersey and Nevada, for example, they are making a mail-in ballot, in essence, an absentee ballot, available to everyone, which means there's a lot of potential ballots out there that could be voted by people who are no longer alive, um, who are incompetent, for example, um, who have moved um, out of the jurisdiction and that sort of thing. I mean, they call this ballot harvesting. Um, and um, so to the extent that people have said the potential for mischief due to the mass mailing out of, of ballots to be voted is greater, I think that's right. But you said available, but as I understood it, 
when you did your absentee ballot, um, the absentee ballot was available. You requested it. That's correct. But as I understand the situation, at least a couple of states, maybe the two you mentioned, these things are being mailed out willy-nilly, whether they're requested or not, right? Yes, yes. and that, that I find that problematic. I do, um, too. I do, too. Because of the, the potential for abuse. How many states? Is it just the two? Uh, no, I, my, my recollection is there's three to five, but I, I couldn't tell you for certain. Okay. All right. right. Uh, To conclude, you've looked at this, you've studied this very well, and you've explained it very well. Are you a little worried, pretty worried, very worried? I am am very concerned simply because um, of of all of the, the potential issues we've talked about. But I come back to the point we discussed before. That is, it's not going to matter if there is a winner by four, five, yeah. or seven points um, in a given state. It's going to matter where it's close enough that by law, a recount matters. Yeah, understood. Um, thank you very much. I, could I ask you about another matter which you may or may not want to speak of, but it's just something sure. I, I don't understand. I went to law school, but unlike my brother, I never committed the sin of practice, all right? Uh, <laughs> you know Uncle Bob, I assume, pretty I well. I do, quite well. Bob. Yeah, white collar Bob. Um, I'm the dirty collar guy. Uh, <laughs> people people say, which one of you is adopted? You surely couldn't have come from the, out of the same. <laughs> anyway, I said, and then someone else said to me, are you the good Bennett or the bad Bennett? I said, depends on your theology. You know, uh, there you I, I don't, don't want to be unfair to Bob, but we, we, we usually, we agree more than we don't. But this general Flynn, does he just sit in limbo? And if Biden wins, is it possible that guy is still sitting there when Biden is inaugurated and then he stays in jail or goes back to jail? Can this issue be forced on behalf of, of his, on behalf of him by his lawyers? Well, they, I think uh, Sidney Powell is his lawyer who's done right. a great job. And I think she has um, tried every which way to Sunday to force it including through the, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which, yeah. you know, voted along, you know, I have to say, partisan lines to yeah. let the process below run its course. I think it's unconscionable what's happening. There is a, there, I, I don't mind talking about, about this at all in generalities, but the, the, there is a long, long line of, of cases that goes way back that says the decision to initiate a prosecution uh, to pursue a prosecution or end a prosecution belongs in the executive branch. And there is no judicial supervision over that decision-making. That power belongs to the executive branch. And uh, unfortunately, I think Judge Sullivan is is running roughshod over those principles that underlie uh, that line of cases. Um, the, the department, rightly or wrongly, um, uh, can make a decision, the Department of Justice can make a decision, the Attorney General can make a decision um, to to stop a prosecution. And that's exactly what's been done here. It's that simple. Um, I don't think Flynn will be in limbo um, all that long, um, or certainly into the clutches of a, of a new administration, if there is one because the president retains the power to pardon him. And and you almost have to feel certain that he would if necessary. Isn't there a higher court that can tell judge Sullivan, stop it. 
Well, the the circ the DC Circuit could, and and the department asked them to stop right. and proceed, and they declined, at least at this stage, to do so. Okay, and that was along political lines. The decision, if you look at the lineup of judges who voted, it it, it unfortunately appears to be along political lines. We all like to have confidence in that legal system, you know, which you which you live in. Um, Sometimes it's hard, you know, sometimes it's it hard. is, it is. Well, you know, we, we started this conversation by talking about how all things seem to be politicized. And yeah. I, I think it is unfortunate that um, the judiciary has become somewhat politicized as well. Although uh, there are many good judges sure, that sure. who work hard to prevent that. But, and, but in general too, is it true this, uh, you know, big generalization, about a universe is that too many things go to the courts. I mean, just too many things. We're relying on the courts for too many things. I often say we rely on the schools now to do too many things, things that parents are supposed to do and so on. But we rely on the courts too much, don't we? I mean, yeah, I, the George I Bush said at one point, um, which Bush was it? I, I can't remember. You will. He said, I, I think this is unconstitutional, but I don't know. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forward this on to the Supreme Court. You know, shouldn't he have just acted? Yeah, uh, no, there are far too many things that wind up before the courts. And at some point, we have to come to grips with, you know, a judge in a given district court being able to issue a nationwide injunction which stops right. an executive process. That is probably the most critical reform right. that we could make. Yeah, it just seems odd. You know, you the paper, some judge somewhere said, you know, Trump can't do that. And another judge from some other part of the country says, oh, Trump can do that. And the media reports, big win for Trump, big loss for Trump. Just right. doesn't seem to make sense. George, thank you very, very much. My pleasure, thank Bill. You. Good to thank see you. you. Thank, thank you, General. You. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right, that's it for today's show. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to thebillbennettshow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett and like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share the podcast with your family and your friends. We'll catch up next week.